This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors in the financial industry. Outer Blue by Amundi. Welcome to Blue Convictions, market analysis and asset allocation views. Welcome to this Blue Convictions call. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining us. I am Lisa Jones, CEO of Amundi's Business in the Americas. And today I am joined by two of our most senior investment leaders to discuss the U.S. elections and what they mean for investors. So I'm welcoming Didier Borowski, Head of Global Views, and Ken Taubes, our U.S. CIO and Head of the U.S. Investment Platform. The U.S. presidential election takes place in 27 days and holds considerable implications for the global financial markets. It seems daily we are being introduced to new headlines, such as Trump announcing that he contracted the coronavirus, the last 24 hours with some of the on-again, off-again additional fiscal stimulus as a result of COVID, and the handling of Trump's illness has become a major development of the dynamics of this race. In the last two weeks, we also saw the candidates hold their first presidential debate, which was another important event in the course of the campaign. So let's get right at it. And I'm going to start with the discussion around the topic of Trump's COVID diagnosis. He went to the hospital, spent three days there, went back to the White House. Many of his closest advisors are now infected. And we are hearing that Trump is telling Americans and the rest of the world that COVID is nothing to worry about. So, Ken, I want to start with you first and for you to give us your perspective on the view of the race at this stage. And many polls are signaling a Biden lead over President Trump. So what are you seeing in these poll numbers? Is Biden really the front runner or is the race closer than what the polls indicate? Well, uh, clearly the uh, the polls are suggesting uh, not only a uh, wide Biden lead, but uh, I would say even widening post uh, the debates we saw recently. And uh, perhaps even his uh, recent uh, hospitalization and handling of even himself and the White House and those around him uh, during the last few weeks may be also contributing towards uh, those polls widening. But I do think that um, some of the polls, which are showing a very large lead, showed the same sort of lead for uh, Mrs. Clinton back uh, nearly four years ago. Not to say that uh, things are the same and and the outcome will be the same, but I think we should just all be cautious about polls um, because there are a number of different factors around, uh, I think, people's voting for for Donald Trump. Uh, I I think because of, um, frankly, the character issue, uh, which, which is so uh, important for him and has been uh, such a focus of the, his presidency that many people, I still believe, re- will not reveal in public or to pollsters or to anybody, their friends or workers or colleagues, that they're going to, behind a, a voting screen or in mail this year, vote for him. So I think there's a large um, question mark about the accuracy of the polls the same as it was back almost four years ago. 
in addition, I think uh, a lot of the uh, races, uh, a lot of the race will break a little bit on how uh, African-American, Latinos, and others in some of these big swing states uh, vote for him and also labor. And in, in many cases, up until the pandemic, some of the um, hardest hit on the income uh, scales and, and subject to poor income growth over the last uh, almost more than a decade now, we're seeing the fastest increases in their income during the Trump presidency, only derailed by the pandemic. You don't know, despite all the race tensions, um, whether or not people will you know, vote for that or their wallets. And uh, I, I think that's a big question mark. Um, in any event, I, I do think the Trump um, uh, campaign is, is seeing some tough fights. You see recently uh, assets deployed, um, focus deployed to some of what would be uh, considered you know, pretty strong ground for him down in Arizona historically and elsewhere. So uh, it does look like he's ahead, but uh, I'm just a little skeptical based on some of the uh, history around voting for Trump uh, to suggest it's as far apart as uh, it, they suggest. So, and Didier, then, what's your view? Are you sharing the same skepticism, or what perspective do you have? Yes, I, I, basically, I share the skepticism. Regarding uh, regarding the COVID, I, I think that we were expecting a kind of a surprise in October, and we were surprised. But let's be serious. Uh, the episode, this episode seems to have reinforced the Biden lead, uh, looking at polls very carefully. And this lead, as uh, Ken mentioned, were, uh, uh, was already uh, uh, visible after the first debate. There is a momentum these days in favor of Biden. Having said that, uh, I think we should remember uh, 2016. And uh, we all have a cognitive bias, you know, in the financial sector. So we have to be very careful. We know the importance, as uh, Ken said, of some swing states. So let's be let's be careful regarding that. Having said that, I, I would say that the COVID episode uh, uh, was probably perceived negatively by older people uh, that are finding were well, finding uh, that Biden may have had uh, treatment they didn't have access to, uh, which may push some undecided people uh, uh, toward uh, a democratic vote. And uh, and and the same applies to the poorest and to the African American votes. So it has to be confirmed, but uh, clearly, uh, uh, while uh, 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 Trump's base uh, is clearly in favor of, uh, of, of Trump, uh, the management of this episode weighs probably on the credibility of uh, Donald Trump for the presidential election. Uh, a majority of Americans think that the COVID crisis has not been properly managed, to say the least. And I think it has played a role recently. Having said that, uh, I mean, it's still too close to call. We observe the, the momentum in favor of Democrats, but it's still too close to call for the presidential election. So let's connect COVID with now the markets. And up until Trump became infected with the COVID virus a week or so ago, the markets have been fairly stable. On Monday, we saw the stock market jump. And then there was a big move in the bond market, which some saw as a recognition that the bond market uh, in the bond market, that the Democrats 
we're heading for a win in the election. So, Didier, I'm going to ask you first, what is your view on the market response to recent developments in the U.S. election? You know, for, for markets, uh, uh, Trump uh, support tax cuts while Biden backs uh, higher spending and tax hikes. And as such, there, there was a, a near consensus among investors that a Trump victory would be, uh, you know, good for equity markets in the short run, while a Biden presidency would be uh, would cause a market correction. But it, it, this may clearly be a, a short-sighted views. Uh, uh, you have to bear in mind that their proposals will only be able to pass uh, through Congress if uh, uh, you have uh, uh, the House of Representatives and Senate that are of the same uh, of the same colors. So my point is that uh, at this stage, uh, 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 interestingly, market seems to be increasingly incorporating Biden's election victory, and despite that, uh, uh, we have had no uh, strong correction on equity markets. And I think it's uh, quite encouraging. Probably investors understand that uh, uh, Democrats will perhaps not be able to uh, implement their, their tax hikes first. Second, that you may have a Congress that is split. And in that case, uh, 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 the Biden administration may not be uh, able you know, to raise uh, taxes. While on the other hand, I guess that investors are uh, convinced that uh, Biden would uh, implement a very large fiscal stimulus, in particular regarding infrastructure. And at the end of the day, uh, things would go back to normal for many investors in terms of political communication, crisis management, international relations. And it can be perceived as a guarantee of stability by many investors, in particular outside the United States regardless of the impact of tax policy on, on profits. So my point uh, is that uh, uh, Biden's victory, and uh, to put it in a nutshell, seems to be increasingly priced in. And so far, it has not been that negative for equity markets, while at the end of the day, it has generated a steepening of the yield curve because investors understand that uh, you would probably have more deficits it would be supported by, uh, the, uh, by the Fed's monetary policy, but at the end of the day, uh, the Fed uh, has no commitment to maintain steady you know, the long end of the yield curve, so you may have a steepening of the yield curve. We will have, looking ahead, to monitor the, the impact of the steepening of the yield curve on equity markets very, very carefully. And Ken, same view, different view? What's your comment? I would say that the markets um, are reflecting not only the elections, uh, but several other factors. Number one, uh, there was um, tremendous consternation that once the unemployment benefits and um, this summer expired and, and the $300 extra fill-up, so to speak, uh, waned, that the economy would really take a hard hit post-August. And in fact, that's not happening. Uh, if anything, consumer spending has picked up um, since then, uh, particularly in August and September. And uh, therefore, it looks like the economy is moving along without uh, a double, so-called double dip, even if the rate of new hires is slowing. Uh, overall, the economy is holding up. Manufacturing is doing quite well. Inventories are still light. 
In fact, auto sales came in over 16 million annualized in September. And I think that um, people are looking at S&P earnings, for example, and they're just not going to be as bad as people expected. Number two, I would say that people are looking at the current pandemic environment, COVID environment, and we're watching um, in many states and nationally uh, seven-day rolling averages of new cases um, have definitely picked up, although they've been more flashed for the last few days or week, uh, just under 40,000 in the U.S. But what has not happened is with some delay, and this is a, a thing to be grateful for, um, the death rates have not picked up. And the coefficient that we saw back in the spring is nowhere near it was where it was. And therefore, uh, you're seeing more and more cases, but fewer and fewer deaths. And maybe the market's attributing this to uh, the cohort that's getting infected, uh, college students and others, or perhaps it's related to better therapies, as we've begun to see even with the president. Um, and I think that uh, even before his, uh, his uh, contracting the virus, uh, that Regeneron drug that he got, the experimental drug that was not even authorized yet for so-called emergency use, just more than a week ago, before he got the uh, the the, uh, the disease, that their initial trials were reported uh, as to be very very strong and effective. So the market's looking ahead and seeing that the therapies have gotten better. We're getting closer to a vaccine. And frankly, um, the economy is doing well, and not just in the U.S., by the way, despite the weakness in Europe, uh, you know, China continues to do very well also. So I, I think that the market is looking at a number of different things and, and coming to a conclusion that the economy is moving forward. And the last point I'll make is that despite the back and forth on the uh, stimulus bill, I, I think most people believe that regardless of Republicans or Democrats, that in the new cycle after the president, the new president or Trump are reelected, we will see a spending bill one way or another. So I, I just think that the market has day and day volatility, but some of the longer term trends seem pretty good. So I want to go back to the election for a second, because Didier touched upon this. Well, we've been talking about the presidential election. We know that there's more going on regarding the election as it pertains to House and Senate. So let's just spend a, a moment and think about possible outcomes in November. We could see a full Democratic sweep. We could see Trump or Biden winning and the Houses of Congress remaining split between Democrats and Republicans. We could see a contested election. There are so many different scenarios which could uh, really lead an, an outcome or a direction in one way or another for some of these economic or market-oriented outcomes. So, Ken, spend a moment, based upon these scenarios, what is it that either you're expecting or that you are um, your considerations in this November election? Well, I, I think that that's exactly right, uh, Lisa. Uh, I, I think the elections are, as always, very important for policy. 
and uh, I'll start with the Biden plan generally, uh, as proposed, and of course, proposals don't always get implemented uh, the way they're, they're set out, and there's you know still the back and forth of, of negotiation, but the current plan is, um, and this is not including the $2.2 trillion that uh, the House is looking for, um, so this is accepting that. You know, the, the Biden plan anticipates raising almost $4 trillion in taxes over the next decade uh, post-election, with the three or four biggest hits being a uh, trillion dollars from um, basically reversing the corporate tax rates, another $800 billion for uh, applying, by the way, the Social Security, a so-called payroll tax to incomes above 400000 That's a huge revenue gainer a half a trillion to marginal tax rates being raised back uh, for um, the wealthy. Uh, and an important one, another half a trillion for raising ta- capital gains taxes uh, to the marginal top rate. And then uh, $200 billion from the state taxes. So almost, and I left off a few, but it, it's almost $4 trillion. And then spending is over $2 trillion to create a public health option and expand Obamacare, $2 trillion for education spending, $1.7 for infrastructure and a modified new green deal on climate. So all in all, if you look at his spending plan, it's almost $8 trillion without the um, fiscal stimulus of $2 trillion that Congress is proposing on, on the House side. So this is a huge increase, at least in, uh, as proposed in 21 and 22 in terms of deficits, almost $3 trillion additional to the deficit. And if this got fully implemented, something like a half a trillion baseline uh, in perpetuity. So uh, quite a big spending, and it has a lot of implications that we can get into. But some of the biggest ones, I would say, are you know, uh, watching drug shares because there is a pricing uh, mechanism here that creates another $400 billion in revenue, a bank tax. So banks and the regulatory environment, energy would be in the crosshair. And, of course, the Trump uh, presidency has resulted in about $100 billion a year savings in regulations, which would be, I think, reversed. So... Um, some negatives there, but you know, on the other hand, healthcare, education, housing would all benefit. So I think it would be quite mixed on the equity side. Some sectors would see a lot of new spending, some would see a lot of new regulation and and taxes. But uh, I think it's very mixed. But uh, quite a spending spree in the first couple of years, and then I think the longer term implications are lower real growth because you're going to tax capital, tax incomes, and uh, basically redistribute it in a way for current spending. That, that always hurts, I think, uh, long-term real growth. On the other hand, we know what the Trump policies will be. It'll be a renewed emphasis on regula- deregulation, keeping tax low or lower. And um, unfortunately, I suspect more of the political chaos that we see from his um, behavior and character. So I think just more of the same there. So, Didier, I'm going to kind of um, expand a little bit on what Ken said. And we do hear that whether it's market watchers or along with some of the comments that Ken made, this Biden potential tax implication, this tax hike, 
which could trigger sharp market corrections. Do you agree with that? And from your vantage point, what do you see for U.S. markets versus financial markets in Europe and in Asia? Yes. First of all, uh, 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 Ken has uh, given, in fact, the numbers, and I agree with that. So first point that I like to make is that you have two possibilities. I mean, a Biden's victory with a split Congress or a Biden's victory uh, with a blue wave. And uh, in terms of fiscal policy, it makes a difference. Because on the one hand, uh, by the Biden administration would not be able to uh, raise taxes, while on the other hand, they would uh, obviously implement their measures. But in any case, we would expect uh, 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 President Biden, if he's elected, to be very cautious in the short run, because uh, the U.S. economy is not out of the woods. Uh, when you look at uh, uh, what we expect at the, in, the coming, uh, in the coming months, so uh, that's, that's the first point that I'd, I wanted to make. The, the second point that I'd like to make is that, uh, 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 and I fully agree with what uh, Ken said, the, the, the most probable scenario is that we should see in that case some rotation uh, in the equity space. So for sure, for, for instance, uh, Biden's victory would be, for instance, uh, bene- uh, I would say uh, good for renewable, renewable energy and infrastructure and uh, 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 while uh, regarding the IT sector, it's very uh, uh, it's very difficult to say because at the end of the day, um, even if you have more regulation, uh, 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 Democrats are likely to be very uh, very cautious. I mean, the United States has an interest in maintaining its strategic advantage in technology and acting in a way that does not destroy value. So we may see some rotation in the equity space. I'm not sure that uh, if Biden's, uh, uh, win, Biden wins uh, the election, it's negative for potential growth. Because on the one hand, as Ken said, I mean, it would be clearly, uh, uh, it would impact, in fact, uh, uh, corporate earnings. But on the other hand, we would probably see a, a, a very strong uh, uh, implication uh, um, and some policies that will want, in fact, to deal with rising inequalities. And we know that there is a negative relationship between inequalities and potential growth in the medium run. Meaning that if uh, the Biden's administration uh, implements policies that tends to rebalance the economy, it should be perceived by many investors outside the United States as something that should favor potential growth in the medium run. So there is no, no clear cut, I would say, conclusion regarding the impact of uh, a, a democratic uh, leadership on potential growth in the medium run. In addition to that, as I said, we would expect more stable relationship at the, at the global level between countries. And that's also something that should, in fact, diminish the level of uncertainty that has weighed on, uh, uh, on, uh, on markets over the past, um, over the past, uh, over the past weeks. Uh, regarding Europe, uh, we continue to believe, in fact, from a fundamental standpoint, that uh, European values and those of Japan can do well, uh, that there is, uh, uh, if Biden wins the election, there would be less risk of uh, confrontation between Europe and the United States, in particular in trade, regarding trade. Uh, that's, uh, that's, that should be perceived uh, quite uh, positively. 
Uh, but first, we, are, we need to see the epidemic uh, uh, to be, you know, will have to be under control in Europe, and uh, it is uh, obviously not the case. Regarding Asia, so on the, on the one hand, you have Japan, and we tend to believe that also you have some uh, some indication that then to, to say that uh, Japanese equities may, 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 may benefit also from uh, 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 in the future. But in Asia, regarding uh, the recent trends, you know, it's all about, you know, first what we call first in, first out. And, uh, and we see that China and its satellites uh, are doing well these days. And uh, uh, from a macro standpoint, and that uh, that uh, should retain attention from uh, uh, for investors. So at the end of the day, at this stage, we we continue to believe that uh, uh, the global scenario is relatively more favorable for international investors to European equities and to Asian equities, some Asian equities, than to uh, U.S. Uh, U.S. equities. So before I move on to some other questions regarding the economy and specifically some of the central bank policy, Ken, maybe you can comment briefly on the potential for a contested election in the United States. We know that as a result of COVID, the opportunity to mail in voting is a significant factor in the election this year which may result in not necessarily understanding the results of the election on the night of the election, which is very new and different. So what, what happens in the case of a contested election? And what if any of the results are contested by either one, specifically maybe by Trump? What view do you have on that? Well, you know, I'm not expert on election law, but I, I will say this, that when you look at some of the state rules around uh, deadlines for getting in mail ballots, uh, about when they can even start counting mailed-in ballots, it does look ripe for, I wouldn't say fraud, but for delay, um, because some of the states don't even allow for counting mailed-in ballots until the day of the election or the day before. Uh, some of the states allow for mailing up to just a few days before the election, in which case, if you know the Postal Service, uh, they're not able to deliver it in one or two days necessarily, so they may be received after the deadline. So there's a whole host of, I think, operational issues I wouldn't characterize as fraud that will perhaps create a delayed election. Of course, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, and several amendments to it uh, speak to this. And I, I do understand that there are some hard dates there and some procedures which everyone may not be aware of. But in, in fact, um, the election results are required 41 days after the election. And um, the electors must be chosen because we don't have a popular vote. You actually vote for uh, an elector to the electoral college. And um, the, the, the election of those electors must be completed by December 14th, uh, which is 41 days from the election. And um, after that date, uh, it becomes a problem. Uh, if there's a disputed election, or if the Electoral College is a dead heat, it is possible, by the way, for uh, Congress to decide the election uh, if the deadlines are not met uh, in, the, in the event of a dispute that goes on. 
um, or if there's a dead heat. And um, this is also not well, well understood, but in the event it goes to Congress, then the senators each have one vote for a vice president and um, the House gets to choose the president. And it's not by members of the House, it's by state delegation. And um, so today, the even though the House has a majority of the Democrats, there are actually more Republican delegations in the House. In other words, there are 22 state Republican delegations and 22 Democratic. I think Pennsylvania's a tie, and, and there's another complication, I think, with Michigan, with an independent. But it's not on the current House. It's on the newly elected House uh, after January uh, installations. So... It can get quite murky, but the Constitution does provide for uh, a process. Hopefully, that doesn't happen. Uh, the market, I, I would say, and most Americans would rather see a clear, uncontested election. Uh, but we are ripe for some delays, potentially, particularly if it's very close. Thanks. I have a few more questions that I want to get through, so let's try to keep our answers, and my questions, I'll try to be brief as well. So, Didier, you commented um, in the last question that we had about the more favorable view or relations potentially for a Biden presidency, whether it's in Europe or in Asia as well. So, let's spend a moment and talk about some of the implications in the economy as a result of COVID-19 the fallout on, you know, employment and travel and production of goods and services. Prior to COVID, we did see a certain decline in global trade. And as we've all known, the China-U.S. relationships have been tense. So what is your view, Didier, on the China-U.S. trade deal, depending upon the result of the election? Um, any change in this relationship or your view on this? Well, uh, as you know, the two countries agreed to, to postpone a review of the process of their phase one trade deal. And we believe that in any case, uh, 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 the relationships are going to be uh, very complicated uh, in the coming years between uh, China and the United States. The modus operandi will probably be not, not be the same uh, with Biden and with Trump, but at the end of the day, from a strategic standpoint, the relation, the strategic relationship uh, will be uh, quite uh, complex. So it will be uh, uh, very complex uh, to, uh, uh, to move to a phase two deal. Uh, it has to be uh, negotiated. We cannot rule out, you know, some confrontation between uh, between China and the United States on some strategic issues looking ahead. So that's uh, there, there has been a big change over the past few years, and uh, and we should expect, in fact, uh, uh, the confrontation to remain uh, to remain there. Having said that, regarding global trade, I'd like to say one word before moving. I would say on uh, what we expect regarding the the the, 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 the relationship between U.S. and Europe. Uh, we are seeing a, a slow recovery uh, in global trade, um, but at the end of the day, the current crisis will leave its mark on the organization of value chains. And what we expect looking ahead, we expect, in fact, 
uh, not uh, 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 we expect countries to diversify supply chains to avoid being too dependent on one country or area. So it's all about reassuring. What does it mean in practice? It means that it is the end of, of what we call, uh, uh, I would call, uh, unbridled globalization. It's not the end of globalization. With the great financial crisis, we, uh, uh, we are, uh, uh, in fact, we, the, the period of uh, a very strong growth on, in global trade that uh, uh, grew twice more rapidly than global GDP has end, uh, ended. Uh, between the great financial crisis and the COVID crisis, where global trade and uh, global GDP were more aligned, looking ahead, in any case, uh, we would expect, in fact, global trade to grow less rapidly than global GDP. What does it mean in practice? Well, it means that uh, we will see more decorrelation between business cycles and probably more opportunities for investors. So that's a, a key point to have in mind. Regarding now the, the relationship between Europe and the United States, it's clear uh, for us that uh, uh, um, the common values, you know, on which uh, the two continents have built their relationships in the Second World War, which were democracy, respect of human rights, free trade, uh, uh, these uh, uh, these common values are no longer, you know, uh, in place with uh, with uh, with Donald Trump as a, as a matter uh, as a matter of fact. We would see, and we see two very different scenarios. In fact, if Donald Trump is re-elected, basically the major threat for uh, for Europe would be a renewed trade tensions, in particular regarding the automotive sectors, and uh, uh, and many investors are worried about that. Uh, as uh, it could really uh, generate a trade war between Europe and the United States. While if Biden is elected, on the other hand, it's a very different world regarding the uh, uh, U.S.-Europe, the, the, the relationship between the European Union and the United States. We would, we would see a kind of normalization and a, a, a return to multilateralism uh, uh, and that's, uh, uh, that, that would be clearly uh, perceived positively uh, by uh, by investors, in particular by investors who are keen to detain or would be keen, keen to detain uh, European, uh, European stocks. So that has to be monitored very carefully. I would say that the big change, we are talking a lot about the relationship between US and China. In any case, for strategic reasons, uh, the relationship will remain very complex. Uh, in the coming years, while uh, 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 this presidential election will prove a game changer for the relationship between U.S. and Europe. On the one hand, if Donald Trump is re-elected, we can expect uh, more trade tensions, and that's uh, uh, while uh, if Biden is elected, it will be probably uh, we will see more stable relationship, and that's something that should be perceived quite uh, quite uh, positively by investors. So, Ken, give you a chance to comment on um, a Trump or Biden win and your outlook for the U.S. economy. What's your point? Well, I think it's quite mixed. Um, in, in the short term, uh, in, in what I mean by that, the next year or two, uh, the, the Biden plan, as I outlined, contemplates an extraordinary amount of fiscal spending. Um, and probably enough to overcome the fiscal drag of the tax hikes on the wealthy, because even though um, there are significant tax hikes on the wealthy, as I indicated, marginal tax rates, state taxes, payroll taxes, 
et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the plan ex- really contemplates spending more than $2 for every re- dollar revenue taken in. The question will be the long-term implications of that, which I think could be um, poor as we basically spend money for current consumption and tax more heavily investment. Uh, I, I don't think that's very good for real growth in the future, but it will have a positive impact in the near term, in my view. And uh, frankly, um, the increased regulatory burdens will contribute to that and, and so on. And I think the Trump plan, while controversial in many camps, particularly on the left, um, had had a beneficial impact on raising growth and also uh, much to people's surprise when you say it, because then you have to go back and check the numbers. But as even reported by the federal government in recent data, that the income gap had begun to narrow quite considerably during the last two years as wage growth and incomes for the uh, those at the bottom of the economic ladder began to rise much faster than those at the top, even if everybody's income was going up. And furthermore, that has begun to contract that inequality gap. Now, it's still there, but it was moving in the right direction. So I, I think that uh, short term, the Biden plan could be very stimulative, uh, although I do think that Trump will pass it spending bill as well, but not the sort of economically wide, uh, dramatic platform change. So uh, I, I would say that it, it could be stimulative in the short term with very, very varying effects on the equity markets, depending on what sector, as I indicated earlier. I'll give you one indication, uh, one indicator. For example, if you think about it, raising the capital gains tax uh, which will raise something like, uh, as I said, uh, $400, half a trillion dollars over the next decade, which, which doesn't seem like a lot every year. But I think maybe you're already seeing that anticipation in the markets because we've already begun to see a rotation from the top growth tech stocks, which have huge gains, vis-a-vis other sectors which have been lagging. And and if you have that sort of certainty around a higher probability of that tax going into effect, I can only imagine after the election, if it's decided before year end, which we hope, that uh, that selling in this, those stocks that have seen the greatest capital appreciation will certainly accelerate into year end, particularly if there's a fear that the taxes will be passed retroactively to the beginning of uh, 2021. So uh, I think there can be tremendous sector uh, displacement, uh, both positive and, and negative. So one of the things that I think we've all witnessed in 2020 is the impressive and quick, swift action of central banks and policy and overall regime changes Some of the questions, many of the questions we get from clients and investors is, you know, what's the perspective on inflation? How do we think about the U.S. dollar? So I'm going to ask each of you, Didier, I'll start with you first. Thinking about the overall regime change that we've seen with some of this policy action in 2020, comment for a moment on what this election may mean 
for any direction in central bank policy and implications for inflation? Yes, in any case, Lisa, uh, in fact, we believe that central banks are trapped to some extent in their QE policies. So, you know, the border between fiscal and monetary policy is not clear uh, now these days. So my point is that uh, in any case, uh, 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 the fiscal expansion that is likely uh, uh, um, to be put in place uh, after the election, either through uh, 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 tax, uh, tax cuts or higher spending, will be supported by the Federal Reserve. And it's a kind, it's a new world in which you have some kind of financial repression at the end of the day, and it's here to stay. So it's a regime change, you're right. So the first point that I'd like to make is that we see no clear relationship between the money supply and inflation levels, at least on goods and services. This relationship has broken more than 25 years ago. Uh, and we see, uh, on the other hand, that the monetary expansion has an impact on financial and real assets much more than on uh, goods and services prices. So that's the first point. And that it, it, it gives more room for maneuver for central banks to support very expansionist fiscal policies. That's true in the United States. That's also true in Europe. And it's uh, uh, to some extent in certain emerging countries, but uh, they do not face the same constraint. They may have more inflation uh, uh, to uh, uh, to combat. Uh, we, we must uh, distinguish, in fact, what's going on in the United States and in the Eurozone. We believe that inflation could resurface more rapidly in the United States than uh, in Europe, and in particular in the Eurozone. Um, the policy mix is going to be very, very accurate accommodative looking ahead. And, uh, and uh, we know that the Fed and its, uh, the change in its strategy review will now uh, uh, seek to stabilize inflation around 2% on average over an entire economic cycle and this, uh, something like which has been in between, uh, I would say, four and year, eight year, uh, four and eight year period. Uh, and uh, it, uh, in practice, what does it mean? It means that the Fed uh, will avoid rate hikes at the first signs of accelerating inflation. And uh, it means that a, a real interest rate can go uh, 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 more uh, in negative territory in the, uh, in the short run. So that's, that, that's the point. And when you look at the dots coming from the Fed, there is no rate hike to expect before 2024. So we may see a change looking ahead, but at this stage, it's what we are seeing. For the, for the ECB, the, 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 it's very different. Uh, uh, my point is that we've seen recently more disinflation uh, in the eurozone. There is a, a risk of uh, de uh, uh, an intensification of deflationary pressure in the eurozone in the short run. And you have very two different communication from the Fed and the ECB. For the Fed, uh, clearly, they don't want, in fact, and the Fed does not want to, to, to normalize its monetary policy anytime soon. But for the ECB, the ECB continues to say that all tools remain on the table. All tools remain on the table. What does it mean in practice? In practice, it means that in the worst case scenario, if deflationary pressure intensifies, and if at the same time the euro appreciates, for instance, we cannot rule out, even if it's not our central scenario, we, could not, we cannot rule out in the eurozone a new, another red cut. And that's something very important, I would say, to take, uh, to take into account. So it's, an, it's a regime change, clearly more accommodative monetary uh, policies, even in the recovery phase. 
and uh, inflation expectations are probably too low, but central banks will not react to uh, 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 the first signs of uh, inflation. So first will come some, I would say, uh, fears about uh, inflation being too low. And after, in the medium term, we could have a new regime change where investors would understand that at the end of the day, with less supply and more demand and with these very expansionist monetary and fiscal policies, inflation will resurface. And that we put at risk clearly, uh, 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 it would be very complex for central banks to, and for investors to deal with this new environment, but we are not there yet. So, Ken, agree, disagree? What are your points on inflation, um, in particular, maybe from a U.S. perspective? And, and I think our audience would also be very interested in the U.S. dollar and any comments that you have on the U.S. dollar. Okay, thanks, Lisa. Well, uh, several points uh, I, I think that DDA touches on are very important. Number one, on the Fed policy that we uh, are now looking at, I, I think it's a little bit of a sea change. In, in fact, more than a little bit, a, a quite a sea change. Maybe not as strong as getting off the gold standard, the OS or Bretton Woods, but it's a, essentially the Fed has said that we're going to put our longstanding reliance on the Phillips curve. In other words, that there's some trade-off between growth uh, in lower and lower employment and um, higher inflation. We're going to put that on the shelf and not worry about it. And we're going to keep monetary policy exceptionally easy to get inflation higher. In other words, unlike even out of the 08-09 crisis, when they began to tighten rates somewhat preemptively, anticipating higher inflation, and that the inflation would eventually work into their 2% target, which it never did. Now they're not going to do that. They, they have said they're going to peg rates at zero or near zero until they see the whites of their eyes. And maybe even using this average inflation notion will let it go above how much they haven't said, for how long they haven't said. But nonetheless, that's a big change. And um, I think eventually that could have um, at least some positive impact on inflation in the, in the United States. As DDA said, real rates as the economy picks up become more and more deeply negative. And I think the market was somewhat disappointed recently when the Fed announced it but didn't go a step further and really saying that we're going to step up our quantitative easing to match that rhetoric and those words and that policy in the near term. But I think the market overreacted to that because I do think they would if necessary because the economy is not currently falling back. In fact, it's moving ahead despite the lack of fiscal stimulus. And furthermore, as the economy continues to improve, that policy becomes effectively easier and easier. So I, I think that's quite material. And I, I think that that will contribute to certainly what we're already seeing, by the way, a steeper yield curve as inflation expectations begin to creep back in. In fact, if you look at at least one market uh, metric I tend to look at, um, the Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, the TIPS market, that implied inflation rate has completely rebounded to pre-pandemic levels despite the economy still lagging quite badly compared to that. So the market's already looking at that. 
also um, discussion around goods inflation versus services. And, and I think people sometimes miss the big picture on why we haven't had goods inflation despite uh, central bank activity for more than a decade that's been very easy and accommodative. And, and I think what's been important is two main drivers for goods inflation, not so much services, which has been actually pretty positive for the last few years, and that global trade over the last 25, 30 years steadily increased as a percentage of world GDP. And I think from from a macroeconomic perspective, that's had a very, very positive effect on disinflation in goods prices as countries, you know, using macroeconomic theory, a comparative advantage, um, produced goods more cheaply than the rest of the developed markets, and goods prices were consistently um, lower or disinflating. That was combined, by the way, with China, the emergence of China as a world economic powerhouse, and their stated government policy through their SOEs, their state-owned enterprises, to build factories, manufacturing fa factories in all sorts of industries, regardless of whether the world needed another textile mill or another auto plant or another iron steel making plant. It didn't matter. It was state policy to get people employed and keep the economy moving ahead. This also contributed greatly to disinflation over the last 20 years. I think we can all say that world trade as a percent of GDP in the last few years has begun to wane. Uh, we saw the trade protectionism crop up. One of the reasons Donald Trump, by the way, in my view, got elected the populist president that he is because of what happened to the U.S. Rust Belt in that those two processes I just described. And I think the pandemic has worsened it because during the height of the pandemic, we saw in many cases terrible nationalism where lockdowns on exports in certain countries due to their fears of not being able to have those supplies, regardless of the actual data in hand. And uh, I, I just wonder if this is not going to be the case. By the way, under a Biden presidency, it's not clear that world trade or U.S. protectionism will wane again, because even though he presents a more calm and accommodating face, the Democratic Party, backed by labor, has not been particularly open to trade. In fact, the Biden platform includes a very significant Made in America program, if you look at the details. So I just wonder if the historical 20, 30 years period of good disinflation is behind us, and then you combine that with the monetary accommodation that we're beginning to see that's quite different than prior practices could in fact contribute to somewhat stouter inflation going forward. Uh, I think that's quite possible. And with respect to the dollar, um, Lisa, as you indicated or asked, you know, the dollar historically has waxed and waned depending on a few things. And for the last almost decade, it's been pretty strong and, and some would say overvalued. And I think a couple of things have contributed to that. One has been the fact that the U.S. economy has generally been, not every year or every quarter, but generally been stronger than some of its other developed market pairs and, and peers. 
and that has resulted in generally higher interest rates, particularly real rates in the U.S. Of course, those real rates now relative Europe, Japan, for example, and others have collapsed with the pandemic. Our rates, too, are now near zero, even if not going negative. And that's one of the major supports for the dollar. The backdrop had been already poor for the dollar, but overwhelmed by this real rate advantage. And the poor backdrop is directly attributable to the worsening fiscal situation of the U.S. government and state and local governments. And as debt to GDP increases or whatever metric you prefer continues to get worse, I think that that too um, is going to contribute to a more sustained dollar weakness. And uh, if you look at the pandemic, quote unquote, spending, uh, the U.S. is one of the leaders, uh, New Zealand, Canada as well. But if you look at compared to Europe, uh, the U.S. spending as a percentage of GDP to contain the, the virus in terms of fiscal support has been over 10% of GDP, whereas in Europe, by at least the standards I've seen and the data I've seen, more like half of that and much less direct support to individuals. So uh, I, I think the dollar position is, is, is at best flat, but in practice, I think weakening is ahead of us. So I'm going to wrap this up with the last question. Thank you both for your really detailed discussion around the election, trade, inflation, the dollar, relations between the U.S. and China and the rest of the world. So as the moderator of the presidential debates, I now know how hard it is to keep everything on time, so I'm going to do my best. I'm going to ask you to briefly summarize, based upon the outlook and the conversation we've had, your key investment convictions for investing in U.S. assets. I'm going to ask you, please, to each take no more than 30 seconds. Didier, you go first. Well, we believe, in fact, that there is a bubble in the IT sector in the United States. It may inflate further, but the risk-reward is no longer attractive for European investors, for foreign investors. And it is all the more true that we expect the dollar to trade lower. No free fall of the U.S. dollar, but clearly a risk are skewed to the downside. So it's time to consider diversification opportunities in the rest of the world. Thank you. Ken? Well, uh, I, I guess this is one area where I, I, may, I may take a little different position. I don't think U.S. stocks on average are expensive. In fact, if you look at Friday sell-off, uh, which looked pretty severe in the headlines, if you look at the S&P equally weighted, it was up about 40 basis points. And I think that is indicative of what's the problem in the market. There are a few stocks and a few segments of the stock market that are exceptionally expensive, but on average, the U.S. stock market is, is uh, attractive, particularly in some of the value spaces. So I would suggest people look at value-based equities uh, as an alternative. And then within fixed income, even though I think rates in general are too low or um, be, or let's put it this way, are so low that you can't preserve your capital or get any income. There are some sectors that are interesting. Uh, I continue to believe that in an environment of, of um, government support, economic um, movement forward, credit will do well. And particularly 
in what we call the securitized sector, which I think is difficult for many Europeans to invest in. But the housing market in the U.S. will be a very, very bright light for the U.S. economy as it is now and into the next few years. And I think credit, like in mortgages and other assets backed by housing, will continue to do very well. And this is a pretty big market in the U.S. that can be invested in. Thank you to you both. Thank you to our clients for attending. I appreciate the contribution that Didier and Ken made to the call, and we wish you all a pleasant rest of the day. Thank you. Bye-bye. This podcast is only for the attention of professional investors, as defined in Directive 2004-39-EC, dated 21st of April 2004, on markets in financial instruments called MIFID, investment services providers, and any other professional of the financial industry. Views are subject to change and should not be relied upon as investment advice on behalf of Amundi.